Welcome to Petrifaction. I'm your host, Petey. And if you like stories about ghosts, monsters, vampires, the weird and mysterious, UFOs, Bigfoot, and other cryptids, you're in the right place. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Remember, friends, be prepared to be petrified. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's show. It is going to be a great show. For the first time, we're going to do a true crime episode, and that's what this one's about. It's the Cleveland Torso Murders. A little-known fact, Elliot Nest from The Untouchables, who is credited with bringing down mobster Al Capone in Chicago, actually worked in Cleveland previous to going to Chicago. And this is a case that Elliot Ness and his team worked on. And unfortunately, it went unsolved. And it actually bothered Ness up until the time he died that this case was never solved. It is again, the Cleveland Torso Murders. And I'm including it in the podcast because honestly, I can't think of anything more terrifying than a serial killer being in your town. So that's this story. And after the torso murders, we're going to get into a case submitted by a listener. Thank you, Tina, for your submission. Also, there was a bonus put out earlier in the year. You may or may not have heard it. And it is about fossil footprints. Now, the reason this is so important is because... Fossils are millions of years old, traditionally, and in this case, human footprints were found in fossils, and at the time that scientists say that the fossils were made, so the time that the footprints were made, they seem to be human, uh, were 600 million to 200 million years ago, and vertebrates weren't even walking the earth yet. So how on earth did footprints from a human or a supposed human or humanoid being end up in our fossil record? It's really a mystery. 
And I think it's a pretty cool one. So that's included in the show today, too. And I talked about Chicago with Elliot Ness. And we're going to go back to Chicago to end out the show. And this is because currently Chicago is experiencing a massive Mothman flap. Now, flap is just something that we say, like a UFO flap. It's like there's lots of witnesses. It keeps, it's ongoing. There are lots of reports on different dates. It's kind of what's happening in Chicago. And it's basically all around Chicago. But these reports were taken within the last few years. So they're recent. And they happen at O'Hare Airport, which is arguably one of the busiest airports in the world. Very interesting stuff. So sit back, folks, relax, get comfortable, and I hope that you enjoy the show. The Cleveland Torso Murders may have been the work of the first serial killer in United States history. The Torso Murders, committed between September 1935 and August 1938, were believed to be serial killings. Most of the bodies were discovered in or near the Kingsbury Run area, a creek bed that ran from East 90th Street and Kinsman Road Southeast to Cuyahoga River. Torso murderer body parts of what was thought to be seven men and five women were discovered. Most victims were dismembered and all were decapitated. The similarities in dismemberment which were carried out with surgical precision, led investigating policemen to surmise that the murders were committed by a single person with significant knowledge of anatomy. One day in September of 1935, in the Kingsbury Run area of Cleveland, two bodies were found in the bushes. Police were called immediately and, after looking over the crime scene, were able to confidently state that there were two male bodies that had been emasculated and beheaded. There was no blood at the scene, leading detectives to conclude that they had been killed elsewhere and transported to the crime site. One of the bodies would remain unidentified, but the other was identified as an Edwards Andresy, who was known to the police as a petty criminal. Curiously, it was determined that the anonymous man had been killed several weeks before Andersey. Police work began in earnest, and the workload increased when the body of a female showed up in January of 1936. She'd been killed in a similar manner to the men. Detectives were puzzled that the killer had changed the gender of his victims, which was unusual. The body was soon identified as Flo Polillo, a frequent patron of bars in the area. At this point, the famous Elliot Ness became involved as he was Cleveland's chief of public safety. He added himself to the growing number of law enforcement working on the case. The murders continued. In June of 1936, a male body was found that featured several notable tattoos. Despite these distinctive markings, the body was never identified. A partial body found in September had a hat nearby that was later identified as one given to a homeless man by a local woman. 
This reinforced the theory that the Cleveland Torso murders were being committed solely on people from the lowest rungs of society. There was a slight lull in the murders, and although the investigation continued at a frantic pace, Ness and the police were not any closer to finding the killer. The killer apparently killed six more times before the last victim was found in August of 1938. Like Jack the Ripper, there was some disagreement among law enforcement as to the number of murders committed by the killer. The hunt for the murderer hit one dead end after another. Investigators were hopeful when a man was identified who often went to a bar patronized by several of the victims. This man was known to be angry and threatening when drunk. The man was taken into custody and, after some time, confessed to one murder. Unfortunately, he killed himself before he was fully questioned about the other murders. Suspiciously, after his death, he was found to have several broken ribs, which acquaintances of the man said he didn't have when he went into police custody. This led the press and general populace to believe his confession was worthless and had been obtained under physical force. Later, Ness himself oversaw the pursuit of another man, a doctor with a history of mental illness. He was brought in and failed a primitive lie detector test. Ness felt he was finally on the path to the killer and continued to press the medical man. The doctor, however, eluded Ness by voluntarily committing himself to a mental institution, which placed him out of reach of Ness and his team. Had Ness pursued the doctor further, the doctor had an insanity defense literally locked in place. Incidentally, the Cleveland Torso murders appeared to have stopped after the doctor went into that mental hospital. Cleveland police continued to investigate the crimes, but no convictions were ever made, and the murders remain a cold case that may be solved in the future, or it may remain an unsolved puzzle from the realm of 20th century true crime. This comes from a listener to Petrifaction Horror Stories. This is from Tina. Hello. My name is Tina, and this inexplicable thing happened to me when I was 20, back in 1998. In between my junior and senior years of college, I decided to take a summer off and backpack through Europe with two friends. I was with my friends Bill and Louise. We had graduated high school together and were thick as thieves. We were the trio, always together sharing adventures, and this would be our best one yet. We arrived at Heathrow Airport on June 1st of that year. I clearly remember debarking from the plane and heading to the concourse to begin our journey. It had been a long and somewhat bumpy flight. We experienced turbulence on several occasions. My friends headed for the restrooms, and I agreed to grab us a few drinks from one of the open restaurants at the airport. I remember ordering two coffees and a soda from the counter, 
and my next memory is of being inside a dirty bathroom, sitting on a floor crying. I didn't know where I was or how I'd just jumped from the counter at the airport to this dirty bathroom floor. There were strangers surrounding me, looking down at me. They helped me get up and took me to the management of the store that I was in. Nobody spoke English. The police arrived in an ambulance, and I was taken to hospital. It was there I found out I was in Poland. A kind Polish doctor spoke fairly good English and was able to contact my relatives in America. I was being treated for dehydration and exhaustion. My parents arrived to meet me a few days later and to escort me home to the States. I found out I'd been gone for three and a half months. It was the 17th of September when I awoke on the bathroom floor of a little grocery store in a small town in Poland. I don't know how I got there or what happened in between Heathrow Airport and me waking up in this Polish town. I have absolutely no memories of that summer. My friends, Bill and Louise, can only tell me this. I disappeared in the airport. They looked all over for me and even ended up contacting security to do a search. They eventually found out that I was at the counter for the restaurant and the server there said I never picked up our drinks. I'd simply walked off on my own accord. I guess I left the airport. I was seen getting into a cab and from there it's not known where I went or what I did and I don't have the answers. It's a mystery, perhaps one I will never find the answers to. This had never happened to me before or since, and I have no clue what I did, who I was with, or how, even, that I got to Poland. All I can tell you is waking up in a different place in a country where you do not understand the language and having no idea how you got there is simply terrifying. It's been suggested I undergo hypnosis. I may do this just to find out what happened to me during those missing months. But part of me is afraid, too. I'm afraid of finding out. Anyway, thanks for allowing me to share this, Tina. July 25th, 2016 from A Strange Mystery Archaeology Strange Mystery of the Oldest Fossil Footprints What may be the oldest fossil footprint yet found was discovered in June 1968 by William J. Meister, an amateur fossil collector. If the print is what it appears to be, the impression of a sandal shoe crushing a trilobite it would have been made 300 to 600 million years ago and would be sufficient either to overturn all conventionally accepted ideas of human geological evolution or to prove that a shoe-wearing biped from another world had once visited this planet. Meister made his potentially disturbing find during a rock and fossil hunting expedition to Antelope Spring 
43 miles west of Delta, Utah. He was accompanied by his wife and two daughters and by Mr. and Mrs. Francis Shape and their two daughters. The party had already discovered several fossils of trilobites when Mr. Meister split open a two-inch thick slab of rock with his hammer and discovered the outrageous print. The rock fell open like a book, revealing on one side the footprint of a human with trilobites right in the footprint itself. The other half of the rock slab showed an almost perfect mold of the footprint and fossils. Amazingly, the human was wearing a sandal. Trilobites were small marine invertebrates, the relatives of crabs and shrimp that flourished for some 320 million years before becoming extinct 200 million years ago. Humans are currently thought to have emerged between 1 and 2 million years ago and to have been wearing well-shaped footwear for no more than a few thousand years. The sandal that seems to have crushed a living trilobite was 10 and a quarter inches long and three and a half inches wide. The heel is indented slightly more than the sole as a human shoe print would be. Meister took the rock to Melvin Cook, a professor of metallurgy at the University of Utah, who advised him to show the specimen to the university geologists. When Meister was unable to find a geologist willing to examine the print, he went to a local newspaper, the Deseret News. Before long, the find received national publicity. In a subsequent news conference, the curator of the Museum of Earth Science at the University of Utah, James Madsen, said, There were no men 600 million years ago. Neither were there monkeys or bears or ground sloths to make pseudo-human tracks. What man-thing could possibly have been walking about on this planet before vertebrates even evolved? Madsen then went on to say that the fossil must have been formed by a natural process, though of what kind he was unable to suggest. Dr. Jesse Jennings of the university's anthropology department guessed rather boldly, considering the absence of any supporting evidence, that the print might have been made by one large trilobite coming to rest on three smaller ones. The Antelope Spring site was examined by Dr. Clifford Burdick, a consulting geologist from Tucson, Arizona, who soon found the impression of a child's foot in a bed of shale. The impression, he said, was about six inches in length, with the toes spreading as if the child had never yet worn shoes, which compresses the toes. There does not appear to be much of an arch, and the big toe is not prominent. The print was shown to two geologists and a paleontologist. One of the geologists agreed that it appeared to be that of a human being, but the paleontologist's opinion was that no biological agent had been involved. Dr. Burdick stuck to his guns. The rock chanced to fracture along the front of the toes before the fossil footprint was found. On cross-section, 
The fabric of the rock stands out in fine laminations or bedding planes. Where the toes pressed into the soft material, the laminations were bowed downward from the horizontal, indicating a weight that had been pressed into the mud. In August of 1968, a Mr. Dean Bitter, an educator in the Salt Lake City school system, claimed to have discovered two more prints of shoes or sandals in the Antelope Springs area. According to Professor Cook, no trilobites were injured by these footfalls, but a small trilobite was found near the prints in the same rock, indicating that the small sea creature and the sandaled wanderer might have been contemporaries. In mid-August of this year, Manuel Navarrete of UFO Clearinghouse received a fourth report from someone claiming to have seen a winged humanoid which elicited a security response at Chicago's O'Hare International Airport on the night of July 22nd. The first report was reported to UFO Clearinghouse in early August by three witnesses who claimed to have seen a security detachment respond to a winged humanoid sighting at O'Hare's United cargo facility. That report was followed several days later by two corroborative reports initially received by Phantoms and Monsters and the Mutual UFO Network, MUFON. According to the most recent report, I was coming up the road toward the exit after leaving work. As I approached the curve by United Cargo, I noticed about eight security vehicles that had gathered around. As I approached, I saw something fly over the fence ahead toward the runways. It looked like a giant man with large wings, but I only saw it for a second or two before it was gone. I actually got out of my car and tried to take a picture before it flew out of range of my camera. But, of a second or two of me getting out of my car, I had somebody yelling at me to get back in my car and get the heck out of there. I did as I was told and left, and I was driving out more security vehicles were showing up. I decided to report this when I saw that other people were coming forward about what happened that night. Navarrete said he was able to contact the witness and speak with him over the phone about the events of that night. The witness works at Delta Cargo as a forklift operator and was just getting off of his shift when he came upon the scene unfolding at United Cargo, Navarrete said. He, the witness, told of having his own brief sighting of the winged humanoid and had heard multiple stories from other co-workers and other O'Hare employees about the sightings of the O'Hare Mothman. The witness said that after his own brief encounter, he began to keep his cell phone handy just in case he had another sighting and could try to take a picture of the entity. The man told Navarrete that he first saw the security vehicle's lights as he approached before seeing the winged humanoid fly over the fence towards the runways. He reportedly stopped his car approximately 20 feet from where the road in that area curves and left his vehicle in an attempt to photograph the creature. 
but was immediately told in a very forceful manner to get in his car and leave the area. The witness said the uniformed officer told him to leave in such an aggressive manner that he was immediately intimidated and felt compelled to stop everything he was doing, get in his car, and leave the area post-haste. Navarette explained the witness did state that there were 8 to 10 security vehicles already on scene and that Moore were turning the corner and headed to the area as he left and turned onto West Cargo Road, headed toward the highway. Navarette asked the man why he thought such a forceful response was given for the sighting by airport security and the TSA, to which he responded, Anything unauthorized that enters the tarmac area is usually dealt with severely due to the proximity of active planes. And when Navarrete asked him about the reported sightings at O'Hare, the man replied, Everyone is well aware of these sightings and that many of them are swept under the rug. And he said, Is not surprised that many of the witnesses were told that this was not a misidentified bird while also being told to not speak to anyone about it. Navarrete said that, in his opinion, the sightings valid and the witness showed no obvious signs of deception, and there is no reason to doubt the witness's reports as a hoax or false. Information regarding the sighting has been shared with investigators from the Phantoms and Monsters 14 research team for further study. This information is consistent with the reports I have regularly received from a confidential informant who happens to be a supervisor employed by one of the commercial carriers, said Lon Strickler of Phantoms and Monsters. O'Hare International Airport has been the epicenter of recent winged humanoid sightings in the Lake Michigan Mothman investigation with over a dozen sighting reports coming from the airport itself since August of 2019, and many more reported in the surrounding communities. These sightings began in the spring of 2017, but more historical accounts are being reported as more people become aware of the phenomenon. They generally take place in the evening or at night, often in or near a park or natural area, and around water. Witnesses consistently describe a large gray, brown or black, bat or bird-like creature, although in a small number of cases the creature was described as insect-like, sometimes with glowing or reflective red, green, yellow, or orange eyes, and humanoid features such as arms and legs are often reported. Some witnesses have reported feeling intense fear and an aura of evil emanating from the creature they encountered. Many of the sightings are also of something seen only briefly or are described only as a flying creature with few details, which leaves open the possibility that a misidentified large bird, such as perhaps a heron or crane, or some type of anomalous avian species could explain some, although certainly not all, of the encounters. A number of associated high-strangeness incidents 
have also occurred alongside the creature sightings. These include reports of UFOs, other anomalous flying creatures and mysterious hominoids, parapsychological phenomena, and bizarre events experienced by those investigating the sightings. This is a follow-up report of an eyewitness interview that happened August 30th of 2021. It is from phantomsandmonsters.com. I spoke with the witness in regards to his sighting. The witness was at first very hesitant and was not willing to go into much detail due to the threat of losing his job. The witness said they were explicitly told to not talk to any media or investigators about any of the events that transpired that night or risk being disciplined up to and including termination of employment. The witness was assured that his anonymity would be preserved and that no information would be shared with anyone outside of the research team investigating his sighting. After about a half hour of talking and reassurance, the witness opened up about his sighting and the investigator was able to make some headway into getting information from the witness in regards to the sighting. The witness said he initially contacted the Mutual UFO Network regarding his sighting and then contacted us after seeing UFO Clearinghouse and Phantoms and Monsters run the story about his reported sighting. When asked if he spoke with a MUFON field investigator, the witness said one contacted him via email and they exchanged one or two emails. But after that, there was radio silence and the investigator did not reach out to him again. The witness did provide information to the investigator regarding the sighting and included a sketch of the creature he reportedly saw. When asked if he could provide a copy of the sketch, the witness said he did not have it, but would draw another. When asked about the sighting, the witness said they were unloading a cargo plane that had just recently arrived and that there were about eight other people working both in and out of the place, plus one or two supervisors watching over the operation. The witness said someone got on the radio reporting someone was on the tarmac by the fence. And that's when the witness looked over and saw the entity. He described it as approximately six to seven feet tall and thin with a large pair of black wings that were at least 10 feet across and with bright red eyes. The witness says that the entity was standing near the fence and appeared to be observing them and did not appear to move toward them at all. The entity just stood there slowly moving its wings back and forth. According to the witness, the first TSA and airport security personnel showed up within two to three minutes of the initial sighting and they shined their flashlights directly at the entity. The entity then screeched and began to flap its wings faster and took off into the air. He stated that he saw the entity circle around twice before heading off toward the runways and into the night. When asked why no one took a picture, the witness stated that he was in complete and total shock at what he was observing and the thought of taking a picture had not even crossed his mind. 
he stated that if he had been observed taking a picture, it would have probably been confiscated by his superiors and TSA. When asked what was told to him after the encounter, the witness stated that they were told to get back to work and not to talk about any of what just happened. The witness said they were all pulled into a meeting the next day and told that it was nothing more than a large owl or heron and that they were explicitly told not to talk to anyone from the media regarding this sighting and that disciplinary measures would be strictly enforced, including termination. The witness said that his direct supervisor, along with the company executive, were at this meeting, and they were told to forget the entire episode and focus solely on their work. The witness said the company executive came off with an aggressive stance against the employees involved, and it was he that told the employees that anyone who spoke out about the events of the previous night would be dealt with directly by himself, his superiors, and that they would be dealt with harshly. When asked why he decided to speak out, the witness said he felt it needed to be told that these events are happening. When asked if he was scared of losing his job, the witness said he genuinely was, and that is why he was going to such extraordinary lengths to protect his identity. It was at this point the witness said he would go no further and the investigator thanked him for his time and concluded the interview. It is the investigator's opinion that this witness does sound credible and does not seem to be attempting to deceive anyone with a fabricated story. The fact that multiple witnesses have come forward to corroborate this sighting has only lent credence to the validity of the sighting. That's all for today's podcast. I thank you for tuning in, and I hope you liked the show. If you did, please tell a friend, give us a rating, and hit subscribe. If you have a story you would like to share on Petrifaction, you can contact me at pd at petrifaction at protonmail.com. And remember to check out today's show notes for more information on today's stories. Please return next time to hear more stories and friends be prepared to be petrified.